Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Welcome to episode 30 of The Extra Environmentalist. I am Seth Moser-Katz along with my co-host Justin Ritchie. So Justin, who are we talking to on today's podcast? Today we're talking with David McNally, who's a professor at York University in Toronto, Canada. And he's going to be talking to us about the future of the Occupy movement, talking about the future of youth in our society and talking about how to deal with a lot of these complex issues that the Occupy movement has raised. And when we were talking back and forth during the interview, we were just so unbelievably inspired by the amount of hope that's in David's message. And there couldn't be a more important message for us at this time as we're moving into the winter and cities are cracking down on the Occupy movement and forcing them out of their physical spaces. And uh, it's really one of our most uh, inspiring interviews that we've had yet because I honestly was unbelievably inspired by, by listening to what David had to say. Don't want to spoil any more of it for you right now, so let's jump right in. Dr. David McNally, you're a professor of political science at York University in Toronto and author of many books, including Another World is Possible, Globalization and Anti-Capitalism, and the book we're here to talk about today, which is Global Slump, The Economics and Politics of Crisis and Resistance. I wanted to start out today by talking about what you've written about in your career and then seeing the Occupy movement uh, rising up. I, I wanted to know what it felt like to be writing about anti-capitalism and uh, the negative side of globalization and starting to see a movement rise up across North America. How does that feel? Well, it feels both pleasant and surprising. And at the same time, it feels predictable. I know that sounds strange, but I'm one of those people who has written for a long period of time that capitalist globalization is producing such profound social instabilities and inequalities as well as human and environmental problems that it was inevitable uh, that at some point very sustained counter movements would emerge. When you argue that for a long period of time and the evidence doesn't seem to confirm it, then you get used to the idea that, well, maybe all this is going to take another generation or something like that, that perhaps a decade, two decades, what have you, until you do see a kind of counter movement. And so that's what's 
both pleasant and surprising about it, but also at the same time, predictable. And by predictable, I don't mean ordinary or routine, but if you step back and look at what we've been witnessing for the last 30 plus years of so-called neoliberalism, it's hard to imagine that you can plunder the planet, try to commodify everything from human DNA to plant life, privatize water, privatize every resource that human beings rely upon, and in the course of that, create the most obscene social and economic inequalities and the most severe damage to the planet, and not imagine a growing movement. And by a growing movement, what I mean is not, of course, that there was to suggest that there was not resistance all the way through, because there was, but only sporadically did we see mass social movements with a vision of a different future. It's one thing to resist and another thing to resist and to put forward a vision of an entirely different way of organizing human social life. We saw the global justice movement around the late 1990s, early 2000s begin to do that, but then the effects of the political repression after 9-11 in particular were to really drive that back, particularly in the global north. But I don't think there's any doubt that the period since the global financial crisis of 2008, we've seen an escalating, even cascading effect of rising social movements. And so, hence, uh, pleasant, surprised, and also a sense of being vindicated of that the predictions that such movements were inevitable in such circumstances have in fact come to pass. And do you think that the social movement is starting simply because after the financial crisis of 2008, things have finally gotten bad enough that the dream of this capitalist, uh, you know, consumer economy is no longer delivering for people or, or is it something else? I think it's, that's part of the story, but I wouldn't want to ever say that was the whole story. In other words, I think what the global financial crisis has done is to throw into super sharp relief the processes that have been gathering steam for some time. And it it produced a kind of tipping point. In other words, you had this growing disaffection throughout the society with the current economic and social model. But then when you get governments taking trillions of dollars of public funds, and that's something we may come back to, they're simply taking money that they raise from taxing ordinary yeah. people and investing trillions of it to bail out private banks that are collapsing because of their obscene business practices. I think that produced a tipping point where the disaffection that people had, the unhappiness with the kind of society that we're living in, uh, just got to a point where that was just one thing too much. But the other side of the equation, and I think this is equally important, it's not just that the glaring problems become so overwhelming and so overpowering. It's also that inspiring examples of resistance, in a certain sense, put hope back on the agenda. 
the belief that ordinary people can make a difference. And here, I think the Arab Spring, the upheavals, particularly in Tunisia and Egypt, are hugely important. I think they've had an infectious effect on people around the planet. And now, of course, what's happening is that the people who have been inspired outside of the Middle East and North Africa by those upheavals are now acting and they're re-inspiring people in Egypt at the moment. So I think we've also got a kind of virtuous effect happening where those upheavals which have created hope and a sense of new possibilities keep feeding one another and reigniting uh, movements across the globe. That's a, that's a really interesting point you bring up about the Arab Spring igniting the movements. I, I really like to concentrate for a second on the communication aspect of how those ideas have just crossed over into another whole country. And many different countries are feeling the effects of what's going on in the Arab Spring. How does communication play a role in spreading these ideas? And you know, in particular, the internet with instant communication being the way it is, how does it unite us in a way that it never has before? Right. And I think you've touched on a key element, which is the speed of transmission of experience. Uh, I was both watching what was happening in Tahrir Square on my television screen in real time as the great upheaval was happening in January and February of this year, but also, of course, as you say, through social media, through the internet generally, getting virtually instantaneous reports. And so it's not that we've never been able to learn anything about what's going on in other parts of the world before, but the instantaneous transmission of that information is huge. It means that rather than learning some days later that there's a great event that we wish to support, perhaps by having our own rally or demonstration uh, or what have you, we can learn literally in real time. And I think what that's done is by compressing time, by linking us, as you say, into these very dynamic communication networks, it's allowed the flow of political energies to be so rapid that we're really watching a situation where one part of the world is responding to another. I, you were making the, the point that in the United States, one sees this, and I was really struck by those stories when people in Wisconsin were occupying the legislature earlier this year, that you had people from Egypt, from Cairo, phoning in and ordering pizzas for them. Now, that's instantaneous. <laughs> That's really wow, connected. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's a really important part of this story. We also mentioned that we were talking a little bit before the interview that the powerful message that images can really bring to people. And we saw the way that the the riots in, in Wall Street and the riots in, in the Arab Spring have just have just uh, built off of each other. You see the violence in one place and you have a solidarity march in another place. There's like a brotherhood or a kind of solidarity movement that's just kind of building across the world and it's all kind of building upon each other. Absolutely. And I think we need to realize that the very imagery and the symbolism of 
large numbers of people occupying public space was electrifying because, of course, Tahrir Square in Cairo is our preeminent example this year. But we, if you start to think about it, you then get an occupation of a legislature, public space in Wisconsin. You get the occupations of city squares throughout the summer in Spain and in Greece by the youth movement known as the Indignants, protesting high youth unemployment. And then all that feeds into the energy generated around Occupy Wall Street, which, of course, then truly goes global in the sense that we've got hundreds upon hundreds of cities now where Occupy movements are happening in one form or another. But then, of course, the really interesting and exciting process in which activists in Egypt start to say, you have re-inspired us, and then, of course, to see that they retook Tahrir Square, saying that the military is trying to hijack our revolution and turn it away from its real goals, and they are acknowledging now that the very process they kick-started now many months ago, its spread is now re-inspiring them. So we're really talking about a kind of system of global feedback effects right now, which is truly exciting. And I think it does make this particular moment one in which people can truly feel that they're part of a global movement, uh, perhaps more vividly than ever before. So we were talking just right there about feedbacks, and these movements are feeding off of each other and uh, growing in intensity and and growing in power. And um, because of the global reach of our economic system, to some extent, it takes a, a globalized, synchronized movement to counter it. Um, but where is all of it headed? What do you really see for this global uh, process of resistance? What can we really hope for in terms of being a citizen on the ground, maybe just attending one of the Occupy encampments or whether we've been able to attend it ourselves, just even if we agree with what's what people are saying there? Uh, what can we right. really look for? We need to first recognize that the greatest initial impact of the Occupy movement is in galvanizing public opinion. What it's clearly done is it's given a language, it's given a discourse to resentments and discontentments and dissatisfaction that large numbers of people had, but really didn't have a political outlet, didn't have a political expression. And the language of we are the 99%, they are the 1%, the language of social and economic justice, of reversing inequality, of reclaiming democracy, all of that I think has been hugely important. I mean, I was really struck by the public opinion polls that came out about two and a half weeks into the Occupy Wall Street movement that showed us that Occupy was twice as popular in the United States as the right-wing Tea Party. Now, when you think about all of the press that the Tea Party has been getting for nearly two years, all of the big corporate and backers that it has, the real wealth behind that, and then to say that in a matter of two or three weeks, 
a youth-generated movement with no great financial resources captured the popular imagination in that way, I think that's truly phenomenal. We had some polls come out in Canada now about a week and a half or two weeks ago, which similarly showed a clear majority of people highly favorable to the Occupy Wall Street message. And the younger the respondents to the poll, the more popular. In other words, it was about 58% of Canadians in general supporting the goals of the movement, but well over 70% for younger people. And so I think that's the first thing that we need to, to focus on. After that, I think a lot will depend on how this movement deals with some of the shifts and changes that it will inevitably go through, in part because in some cases it will lose the public spaces that it once held, but also because every movement needs to continually reinvent itself to find new ways of broadening out, growing, reaching new constituencies, deepening its message, and so on. And so to take, for instance, the Occupy London case in England, I was there just uh, about a week and a half ago, and they now have abandoned their encampment at St. Paul's Church, but they have occupied a, an empty bank office building right in the heart of the financial district. And what they're saying is, this occupation is not about an encampment, but this will be a 24-hour organizing center. It will be nonstop, we will not shut down, there will always be people here, and we'll be organizing uh, ongoing Occupy-type actions. And similarly, I'm aware of those places in the U.S. where Occupy activists have in particular organized against foreclosures when people are threatened with eviction from their homes as a result of the financial crisis. The idea that hundreds of Occupy activists would show up and literally, physically make their eviction impossible, which interestingly, by the way, goes back to one of the most popular tactics of self-organization from the 1930s when radical movements were really building dramatically. So I think all of that's on the agenda, but then of course in some parts of the world, like Egypt right now, much higher levels of mobilization are on the agenda. But overall what I would say is that Occupy movement has made enormous strides in the course of just over a month, particularly in terms of creating a new language of protest politics, of radical uh, political dissent in our society. And now the challenge is going to be to find ways to really pull large layers of people into that movement on neighborhood bases, community bases, in and around people's places of work, their schools, and so on. So I see almost a new phase of the Occupy movement coming onto the agenda now. I'm not sure if you were in the United States during the 2008 election, but the Obama campaign, the energy surrounding that campaign really reminds me of, of this Occupy movement. A lot of people feeling passionate and, and going out and you know expressing themselves in a political way. I think this is a very important moment in history. And a lot of people agree that this is something that's, that's a very large groundswell. It's a historical moment. Is it because we're so close to them that we can't understand how big this moment is? And is there a way that when maybe when we step back from it in a few years, we, we can see that this was the beginning of something very, very large and very big? 
Oh, I think that's absolutely right on, on both counts. That is to say that this is a historic turning point. I, I don't think there's any doubt about it that historians will one day really identify this moment as a sort of game changer in the jargon when all of a sudden right-wing groups had dominated the political agenda. A new youth based radical protest movement started to rewrite the playbook and in doing that essentially shifted the whole political culture and the whole political discussion in society in new directions but it's also absolutely correct that when you're in the thick of it when you're in the midst of it you have sense that something really important is going on but at the same time, you're preoccupied with the day-to-day minutiae of what you're doing. Who's bringing a megaphone to this event? Who's getting the posters printed up? Do we have food available for the event? And so you're constantly pulled back to the mundane, to the day-to-day, the absolutely essential things that a social movement requires, but the things that don't seem dramatic and don't seem large-scale. And as a result, I think what you were saying is quite accurate. We often lose sight of the profound historical significance of what's going on. And you, if you read memoirs of activists from the civil rights movement, for instance, in the 1950s and 60s, they often say similar kinds of things. We knew something big was happening, but we couldn't really get a picture of it. We couldn't overall theorize or analyze it. So it was at the level of a sensation, but it was only a periodic thing. Because as I say, so much of the time you had to organize the next rally, get the next press statement out, and so on. And at the same time, I think that it's hugely important for people to have a sense of themselves as history makers to get us away from the idea that history is simply a record of the past and to really understand that the present is history and that what we do today really does shape the future. And I do think that's there. Uh, I know I just had the privilege uh, an hour or so ago speaking at Occupy Toronto and I made that point again that this is history in the making. And I think when people hear it, they know it. It's just a question of really developing that historical consciousness, because the greater our sense of historical consciousness, I think the more profound our sense of what it is that we're doing, and perhaps the longer scale vision, the larger vision that we can bring to our day-to-day organizing. So maybe you could start out uh, in talking about that long-term vision for what we want. How does recognizing that this is a historical moment change the way that we act and think about it, and how can we start creating that long-term vision in our day-to-day lives? The answer to that, I believe, goes back to something I was just hinting at earlier, which is that a lot of the time our movements are resistance movements. We want to stop increased tuition fees. We want to stop foreclosures. We want to stop the closing of a workplace and save people's jobs and so on. And all of that's hugely important work. But often, I made a joke once that I have so many t-shirts that say stop such and such. And we often don't talk about the go part. In addition to stopping these regressive 
forces and these regressive policies around us, where do we want to go? What kind of society do we want to create? And I think the more powerful our sense that we're making history, the more those questions come to the forefront. And of course, they did with the World Social Forums that began in the late 1990s when that beautiful slogan, Another World is Possible, came onto the agenda. And at the World Social Forums, there was the beginning of the development of, I think, some really important principles, uh, notions of human solidarity, of equality of humans, of using the wealth that people produce for to satisfy the most fundamental of human needs, not for a system of corporate profits, for uh, ecological sustainability, to really address the environmental crisis on our planet, to deal with profound and pressing issues such as racism and indigenous land claims and so on. So all of that was coming onto the agenda, but it got sort of short-circuited. And because it got short-circuited after 9-11, I think what's really inspiring about this moment is that it's reopened that discussion. It's expanded our horizons beyond simply resisting to talking about creating a new society. And so it's wonderful to see that discussion being renewed. And I'm inspired by a lot of what's happening because I think in many ways, this particular moment has maybe linked some of those issues together. I mean, I'm certainly really struck by my involvement in Occupy Toronto that if I could really just kind of link these, that economic justice, democracy, environmental sustainability, and indigenous rights are all really linked together very powerfully. They're always discussed uh, almost as a package in the, the rallies and the large educational events and so on. And so all of a sudden, the idea of discussing an entirely different way of organizing human life, of moving beyond capitalism and the rule of corporate power and its machinery of profit-making, that's come back on the agenda. People are once again talking about this as a social movement that doesn't just resist, but is also charting a new direction. And I think really one of the great challenges for the movement will be to make sure that we continue to deepen and develop our analysis in all those areas. But it's incredibly hopeful that we're having those discussions, that the libraries that are being created at Occupies are bringing in books on those kinds of themes, that the educational sessions, some places have their free universities or Occupy universities and so on, where there are workshops and lectures and so on happening all the time. And all of that, I think, is centrally about that conversation as to what kind of alternatives are actually humanly viable. While I wouldn't want to suggest that we're anywhere near having um, a really fleshed out model, I think some very clear directions 
are being developed, and a pretty wide consensus is emerging on at least some real fundamentals, and that's a huge start. Yes, it is, and you know, the more people you educate, you get closer and closer to that hundred monkeys that you need. How is it that we can actually go about creating this new society, and how does that social change occur? Do humans always need to be up against the wall with the gun to their head before they can really start making meaningful innovation and change? I don't think there's any doubt that for reasons which are never totally measurable, things happen in our society where people who feel pushed around most of their lives, and let's be honest, in a society with the kind of power structure that we have, with 1% really controlling what goes on in our lives, in our society, day in and day out, the majority of people do feel pushed around. They feel degraded, they feel neglected, they feel as if they don't matter. And one of the saddest things, I think, for all of us is that we become used to that, almost immunized to the daily scars of existence. And for some reason, at some point, it tends to be the case that one insult, one slight, one injury becomes just one too many. And so it is true that something happens, whereas I was suggesting earlier, perhaps trillions of dollars being taken from the public and given to banks becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back. But also, as I said, it has to be linked to some sense that change is possible. Because I think that's one of the most complicated things always for movements that grow from the masses, that grow from people who've been downtrodden and oppressed, people whose voices haven't mattered and have not been heard. The, they need to believe that change is possible and that they can make a difference because society tells them over and over again, you don't matter, you don't count, and you should just be thankful that you've got anything. Fortunately for you, there are the brilliant minds who can create nuclear bombs and can order people, order police to pepper spray students in the face and so on. These great minds are running the show for us. And so when that sense that change is possible starts, it's infectious. I have to tell you, I was really fortunate that as a teenager around ages 15 and 16, I just caught the tail end of the movement against the war in Vietnam. And I was able to be part of that movement as a teenager for a few years. And what I'm seeing right now in and around Occupy has that feeling to me. It resonates with this spreading sense among very, very large numbers of people that we can actually make a difference. And that was the thing that happened with things, movements like the Civil Rights Movement and then one that I was fortunate enough to experience, the anti-Vietnam War Movement, that we began to believe that we were actually going to be able to stop that war, that we could paralyze the U.S. war machine and make it leave Indochina and stop its massacres. And, of course, we succeeded. And when that happens, when that sense comes across growing numbers of people, it's very, very hard for the powers that be to stop it. Because for most people, what really electrifies them is not 
just the idea that their life could be a little bit better materially. It's especially that it could be socially, culturally, politically better, that their voices could be heard, that they could be makers of history. And I think that's what we're seeing, for example, with this resurgence of the revolution in Egypt right now, uh, for instance, is exactly that same thing. People tasted their own power, their own ability to change things, and they realized it was slipping away, that the generals were trying to roll things back. And that's why you get that incredible heroism where they stood in Tahrir Square all weekend facing the military. Perhaps 19 or more of them died and hundreds of them were injured, uh, and they just would not leave. And I believe that's because of how powerful that sense of making their own future was in the months of January and February. And I think we're seeing something like that now. And so, yes, it's true. There has to come a point where people just don't want to take anymore. But it has to be combined with a belief that if I react against this, if I stand up and take the risk of pushing back and joining an Occupy or demonstrating in the streets or what have you, that it's worth it, that this is really possible. And as I say, for the ruling classes of the world, that's a terribly dangerous moment where ordinary people believe they can make change. Going by historical examples, I think that's the moment we're in. What this country is coming to, I sure would like to know. If they don't do something by and by, the rich will live and the poor will die. Doggone, I mean the panic is on. Can't get no wake, can't draw no hate. Unemployment getting worse every day. Nothing to eat, no place to sleep. All night long, folks walk in the street. Doggone, I mean the panic is on. Saw a man this morning walking down the street in his BVDs, no shoes on his feet. You ought to see the women curving in the flat. I could hear them saying, what kind of man is that? Doggone, I mean the panic is on. All the landlords done raised the rent. Folks that ain't broke is badly bent. Where they get dough from, goodness knows. But if they don't produce it in the street, they goes. Doggone, I mean the panic is on. After the store kicked off its sale, a woman used pepper spray to stave off fellow shoppers. Now, police say at least a half dozen people were hurt and workers were forced to evacuate part of the store. In Forsyth County's rolling subdivisions near Atlanta, Easy Street seems to run forever. What recession? The average household here earns $88,000, the highest in Georgia, 13th highest in America. But for more families here, prosperity is a pretense. The jobs lost, the savings are long gone, and the big house is either in foreclosure or on its way. And just keeping food on the table is a struggle. 
So Forsyth's newly needy file into local food banks. Yesterday's givers have become today's takers. People lost their jobs and went from great incomes to no incomes. The new poor. The new poor. Who are the new poor in this county? The new poor could be you or me, your neighbor, your church member, somebody who has been affected by the economy. What is it that you're so afraid of anyway? It's no secret to anybody that the news is just a constant battering ram of fear-mongering. If you want to be terrified, there's never-ending coverage that can make you scared shitless. Juvenile heart attacks. Could it be your child? You might not think so, but this horror movie graphic will change your mind. Can you get pig flu from pork chops? No. The calls are coming from inside the house. Shots fired. Shots fired. Two out of seven. You must get out of the house. Where's your teen right now? Probably getting the shit kicked out of him. You make me so pissed. People tend to blame the news as though it's their fault for spreading all this fear, as though there's no market for it. You can't blame the news for making you afraid any more than you would blame horror movies or haunted houses. That's what people are buying into. And the reason that people are buying fear so easily and stockpiling it is you'd much rather believe all that bullshit that you know, immigrants are trying to take your job and terrorists are coming to blow up your Ford Focus in particular. That's far more palatable for people to buy than to accept the reality, which is that... Another Great Depression is all but inevitable. That's the view of my guest today. Steve Keen is one of the few economists to have predicted the global financial crisis. And while he used to be a lone voice challenging the economic consensus, now more and more people are listening to him. His way of avoiding depression? Write off personal debt, nationalize the financial system, and start all over again. Do you really think that we are headed for another Great Depression? We're already in one. And the same thing applied back at the last Great Depression, that people didn't call it one until after it was over. Because in an experience like this, you're always hoping that there's change just around the corner, the system will turn around. It's only after you've been through it, people look back and see that it's been going for some years. So the Great Depression wasn't called the Great Depression until sometime in the late 1930s. I'm calling this DEFCON 3, two stages away from a financial collapse that is so huge it's hard to get your mind around. So for those people who are watching, listening to this, thinking, OK, I can cope with things as they are now, mm -hmm. they should relax because it's just a few more years of the same? I wouldn't call that relaxing. Uh, but certainly with the situation now which, which economists in particular are hoping is transient is going to be a, a drawn-out experience. The, the best we can hope for is something like what Japan has been through, where Japan still talked about having had a lost decade since 1990, but it's really been a lost two decades. And you've also suggested that it could take a rising level of violence. Well, the, the trouble is when you have a, a, a growing population and an economy which is used to growth, and people expecting to get employed when they leave school and they find that in fact there's not enough new jobs coming on to handle the new entrance into the labour market. Even if you grow slightly less than uh, the rate of population change, that means a, a population, which is the, you're saying in the recent media, uh, is uh, a lost generation. Well, that lost generation only has one outlet, and that's frustration and violence. It is not the way to manage an effective society. On my clothes and everything on my jewelry watching my ring on my razor and my gun so if luck 
don't change, there'll be some stealing done. Doggone, I mean the panic is on. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with David McNally about our global revolution. Here's one thing I want you all to hear Until they bring back light wine, gin, and beer Doggone, the panic will be on Are all of the people out in in the square in Egypt, are all of the people out in, in Occupy, do they have an intrinsic understanding that they can make change or do they have tangible examples that they can draw on historical or, or even in the last few years of societies that have been able to start reorganizing or start this process? I think it's a combination. I think some people have a fairly developed sort of international understanding that there is a global movement and that that global movement has won successes. I would just give you a few quick examples uh, of the kinds of successes that I think some of the activists are aware of. But, for instance, the great upheaval in Bolivia in 2000 that stopped the privatization of the water system in the second largest city, Cochabamba. That was huge. They were the first example of a popular upheaval that forced a government to tear up a contract with a private multinational that was going to start charging them exorbitantly for their water, including even the water that they collected on buckets on the roofs of their homes. And so I think some of the activists are aware that we won a huge battle against water privatization in Cochabamba. That then was part of a larger movement for indigenous rights and so on uh, throughout Bolivia and other parts of Latin America. I think as well, some people know that in countries like Brazil and Bolivia, the landless workers' movements have been seizing unused land from the rich and redistributing it to create communal farms. Uh, Their encampments, their occupations are on land, and they organize community councils, schools, their own uh, community-based radio stations as part of a very broad-based social movement of half a million or a million people, for instance, in Brazil uh, that is doing their kind of Occupy actions. So I think that there's an awareness among some of the activists that there are these successes that they can draw on. But I think, of course, it's true of any genuine social movement that some people get drawn into it, thankfully, who don't come from those radical circles who've been studying history and, and studying the global justice movement and so on. And that's where something that you mentioned earlier becomes so important, education, popular education, that we really do provide these examples. And then, of course, the most recent ones have been the overthrow of dictators, particularly in Tunisia and in Egypt, where I think a lot of the activists who've come into the movement have seen that 
fact. They watched it on TV screens. They read about it. They discovered things on the Internet or on Facebook about those inspiring upheavals. And so I think there is a sense that there are some successes that maybe we feel we haven't yet made with our own hands, but because of that powerful sense of connection, I think that we do feel in some way that we're a part of that, that we're part of the global movement that's been supporting those struggles. And then, of course, when the activists in Egypt say, as they did in that beautiful letter they wrote to Occupy Wall Street, you have re-inspired us, I think that's also huge for the young people who are in the Occupy movement to hear, to imagine that people who've already overthrown a dictator have found inspiration in what we're doing on a smaller scale. So while I think there's lots to do, and I think some of the smaller scale examples that I talked about earlier, stopping a foreclosure and being with hundreds of activists who do that and keep a family in their home and prevent it from being turned back over to the bank that simply wants to resell the property, that those sorts of small-scale victories will become very significant in the months ahead for this movement. So I think it's operating at different levels, but I do think there's a sense of possibilities and of being connected to some real success stories. More and more it is clear to the elites in our society, those 1% and that, that they're realizing that this moment is a dramatic power shift and they just might decide to burn the whole house down. How synchronized can our global revolution truly become and how can we ensure the functioning of our basic support systems like food production, transportation, education as it occurs? What if the internet is shut down? Is the violence that we're seeing now an inevitable outcome during this tumultuous time? Is, is it going to increase as we've seen in, in other places in the world? I think it's true that the powers that be will use forms of violence against this movement, whether it's pepper spray or the arrests that we've seen in so many cities now around Occupy. That's, I think, definitely part of the story. And uh, I think we need to remind ourselves that in a certain sense, the greatest power we have to minimize the violence of our rulers is our numbers. When we simply have overwhelming numbers, it can paralyze what they try to do. That was the great lesson, of course, of when they had a million and more people in Tahrir Square in Egypt, in the great uh, city centers in Alexandria and Suez and so on. They really shut down the army. And the amazing thing was that when undercover types were sent in to attack protesters, the crowd formed people protection forces. And on the really central day in early February, they actually made people's arrests and they uh, took over a travel agency and turned it into a people's jail. Uh, and they held. Really? Yeah, they actually arrested and held these undercover police officers and so on. And they disarmed them. They 
held them in their people's jail uh, so that they couldn't do any more harm to the protesters. And so that was a force of numbers. And I think it's always really important for ourselves to recognize that while they will use violence, uh, the greater our numbers, the greater our capacity to literally encircle them and shut them down. But of course, the other side of it is that it also has the effect of soldiers in particular recognizing these are my own people. I can't shoot against them. And many of the great popular revolutions in history, you see that when the soldiers then start actually coming over to the people and saying, we will not shoot on you. We, you are our, our sisters and our brothers. Uh, and I think we will see more and more of that as the movement grows. Then there's the other side of it that you mentioned. What about the uh, ability to continue to keep the life support systems of our society going? And I think the Occupy movement has a really singular advantage in that regard, which is that if the people who produce the goods and services take over or occupy they can keep the buses running. They can keep the bakeries going. If, in other words, our movement spreads the idea as it grows and grows, occupy your place of work. Don't let the powers that be shut it down, paralyze the distribution of food, for instance. Then, of course, that's the moment when the popular movement realizes that Actually, bankers and chief executive officers don't do very much except live off our work and make exorbitant profits off the labor of the majority. And I think that that's going to be part of the strategic discussions that the Occupy movement will be having in the years ahead. The idea that at a certain point, it's establishing grassroots control of communities and neighborhoods and grassroots control of the places of production and distribution so that we make sure that those basic goods and services are still available to people, that human life goes on even as corporate power gets increasingly isolated in his office towers. There's all of these elites out here that are, are sitting on, on top of the resources and the labor that we're producing and, and trading with them through our system of capitalism. And, and do you think that as the elite groups see this uh, Occupy movement growing, uh, that they've been expecting mass unrest and, and backlash against it and they've been preparing for it in some way? Or do you think it's kind of catching a lot of them off guard? Or what do you think perhaps, say, President Obama is thinking about uh, the Occupy movement in, in his uh, viewpoint? I think in general, they have been preparing for it. The discussions which you can see, particularly in Europe, but not only in Europe, they know that this age of austerity, where they're cutting back one social program after another to pay for the bank bailouts, they know that this age of austerity is producing discontent and social unrest and upheaval. And obviously in places like Greece, that's been very profound, where every month there are general strikes and mass demonstrations of hundreds of thousands, and there's the we won't pay movement happening in Greece where people are simply saying we're not paying these bills, and they're organizing with, let's say, the electrical workers, the electricity workers, so that nobody's power gets cut off even when they don't pay the bills. So, yes, I think they have been anticipating it. I happen to believe that's even why they held the G20 meetings in a major city 
city like Toronto in 2010. They wanted to test out their ability to police a major city during mass demonstrations. So I do think that's part of the story. Having said that, I think they are taken off guard by the development of the movement in North America. I don't think they expected it this early, and I don't think they expected it to garner the degree of public support that it has as quickly as it has. But there's no doubt that they have been preparing policing movements to deal with much greater mass-based social protest. But again, I think as well that they're very, very worried about some of the connections that they've seen and some of the solidarities that have been emerging. I don't believe they thought, for instance, that one of the main groups that would go down to Zuccotti Park to defend Occupy Wall Street would be New York trade unionists. I similarly don't think they anticipated that longshore workers in Oakland would support a strike and a shutdown of the port of the docks as part of the Occupy movement. And I think they're very, very worried about that. I don't think they saw that coming. This idea of growing connections between a youth-based movement and labor struggles. That, of course, for us is hugely promising because, to go back to my own life example earlier, it was when the anti-war movement began to get large amounts of mainstream working class support that you could tell a seismic shift was happening in our society. And the Occupy movement, by speaking so clearly in that language of the 99%, I think really captured the imagination of a lot of people who haven't been part of radical politics in any way, but really do care about social and economic injustice. And so while I think they have been preparing, and I think that police forces and mayors and so on have known that they were going to have to deal with more protest as they bring the austerity agenda in. Uh, I think we have caught them off guard, particularly with those new solidarities. And yes, I think that some administrations are caught a little bit flat-footed because, of course, the Obama administration in the U.S. want messages to get out there that are going to hurt the right wing and the Republican Party. But at the same time, they want to be seen as the saviors. To go back to the example that we were discussing earlier of the energy around the Obama election campaign, three years ago. That energy was in part because there was a real grassroots movement there, and it thought that it was going to make an electoral change. Now what we're seeing is grassroots movements that are much less focused on the electoral process and much more focused on what I'll call popular empowerment, the idea of empowering ordinary people to take action for themselves. And I think that's taken the Obama administration by surprise. It's not as easy for them to simply channel that into electoral support for candidates or a, a given party. I'm not saying that some people won't give that electoral support. Some may some very well do that. But I think that most of the activists no longer see that electoral process as the center of political life. 
And that's something that I think they're having trouble coming to terms with. I wanted to ask you about what do you think the role of youth is in this growing movement? We're, we're seeing more and more students graduating from colleges and graduating from master's degree and even high school and looking to the future and, and not seeing that that golden job and that, that house with 2.5 children as their future. More and more kids are going back to school and getting master's degrees, getting more and higher degrees and settling themselves even deeper into debt. What kind of role does a youth play in a system that is so very broken and yet they're not sure where to go? What is their role? What should they be doing? Where should they be going? What should they be trying to do? Well, I think in the first instance that youth are once again showing that they are the spark plugs of large-scale social change that if you look at all the great social movements, even of recent history, stay with some of the examples that I was talking about earlier and and we'll add a few, Uh, take the civil rights movement, take the anti-war movement, take the women's liberation movement, the environmental movement, or the Arab Spring more recently. Youth have been in the forefront. And I think that's for an obvious reason at one level. First, young people are really being hit by what's going on with this crisis today. I mean, the official rate of youth unemployment in Spain is 45%. That's the official government statistic, that young people are unemployed at a rate of 45%. So obviously, they're feeling very disillusioned about the future that the system is offering them. But I think the other part of youth playing this really crucial galvanizing role is that when you're a young person, when you're in the school system going to college or university, you're thinking about your future. You're reflecting on the society that you're going to be living and working in for many decades to come. And so you're asking large questions about the nature of that society, what its values are, what its priorities are, and how it might be improved. And I think that questioning that youth inevitably engage in means that they're often prepared not to accept things that an older generation may have gotten used to, even if at some level they're not happy about it. And that's why I think youth have played this, uh, as I say, spark plug role in igniting and providing key energy to these new global protest movements. And then I think the question will come for thousands and thousands of young people whether they want to see themselves as movement builders for this generation. And that's, of course, really what happened with movements like the civil rights and anti-war movements, that thousands and thousands of people said, this cause is my life's work for the next period of time, that we will not rest until we've made some fundamental social changes. And once that happens, of course, then people can start to create whole new institutional forms for themselves. You will see, I believe, as this movement grows, that people will actually begin to create large new social justice coalitions, that these coalitions will begin to establish their own spaces, that is to say, through occupations or other forms. They will take buildings in city centers, which they use as organizing centers, education centers, training centers, places where 
people develop the skills to build a mass social movement where they get the education in a popular education form and so on. And where you begin to figure out how you coordinate all the different aspects of your life, the time you spend working to pay your bills with the time you spend working to build movements for global justice. And that's, I think, the biggest danger for the powers that be right now. If this new generation that's coming to political consciousness makes that kind of commitment that earlier generations have. And I think going back to earlier parts of our discussion, the great interconnections that we're finding now in many ways make that a more attractive prospect for people. They really do see how what they're doing in the streets of New York or Oakland or Toronto or Vancouver, how all that action is interconnected with what people are doing in Cairo or the amazing student movement in Chile right now, hundreds of thousands fighting for free tuition, shutting down the school system and drawing out uh, hundreds of thousands of workers on solidarity strikes and support. You start to feel all those interconnections. When people feel that they're part of a movement for global change, that's a, that can be very electrifying. And I think that for young people to say, yeah, I'm going to make being a movement builder part of my life for this next decade. I'm going to make that commitment. It doesn't mean uh, it's the only part of my life. There will still be time for friends and family, time for art and celebration and so on. But some of that will also be tied into building a movement in our communities and in our schools and in our places of work. And I think if that kind of perspective develops, then in a certain sense, it gets harder and harder to imagine that this movement could be turned back. In a lot of ways, our occupations can become occupying in some sense. Looking at our potential futures, and it's easy in some ways to be caught up with a potentially bleak vision of the future, like not seeing the career that we'd wanted in everything. Do you think that there's legitimate reasons for hope? And do you have any examples? Yes, I do think there are legitimate reasons for hope, and I, I think at the same time you're right in your premise that for a lot of young people today, there is a kind of reality check going on, and that can be very frightening, but it can also be liberating. And what I mean by that is it's frightening to think that the life you thought you were going to move into, as you said earlier, the idea of house in the suburbs, couple of cars in the driveway, and having a job that is, you know, brings home a nice paycheck, which gets a little bit better one year after the other. That dream might be becoming an unreality for millions and millions of people. And so that can be frightening, and that can be scary. But I think it can also be liberating. And I think it can be liberating because it allows you to step back and say, well, really, is the purpose of life to be a cog in the machine of producing wealth for the 1% and then making sure I'm a good enough consumer that I keep the economic machinery going while our planet suffocates, while the distribution of wealth around the world becomes grotesquely unequal, while huge numbers of people 
including children, in parts of the world like sub-Saharan Africa and Asia and parts of Latin America die from completely preventable diseases. Is that really what I want out of my life? To be a contented worker for the 1% and consumer of a lot of mindless gadgets. When this movement that's awakening is now saying, you have the, the opportunity of a very different kind of future. It may not bring with it all of the economic incentives that capitalism has tried to offer us, but it will give you cultural, human, social incentives that capitalism never could. The idea of being first in solidarity and cooperation with people who are trying to change the world, of being an organizer and an educator for a more humane, more decent, more sustainable form of human life on this planet. And to think that you could do something morally and politically uplifting as part of a new community of activists who are dedicated to changing the world, I think that can often be a very uplifting thing. At the same time as there is the fear that comes with that step into the unknown, I think there's also the hope that can be part of the package of realizing that what you were expected to want was always pretty empty anyways. It wasn't really humanly fulfilling. It was about you being a cog in the machine of production and consumption for the 1%. And to imagine a different kind of life, maybe at first a little unsettling, but one of the things that I notice when I go to the rallies, when I give workshop and participate in them at Occupy Toronto or when I visit other cities, I've had the fortune, good fortune recently of meeting with students in China and Britain, as well as uh, giving some of my talks in the U.S. and Canada. I find that there's a huge interest. Students in China were asking me all about the Occupy movement, trying to understand where it's going and what it could mean and how Chinese society could intersect with all of that. And so I think it's time to remind ourselves that the withering of one notion or one vision of the future is also the awakening of another one, which could be, in many respects, a much more uplifting one. Come here, gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few 
A global outcry against corporate greed has risen up in almost a thousand cities worldwide. People have taken their anger to the streets, saying their governments have been taken over by big business. The Occupy Wall Street movement began in New York, quickly spreading across the US to Los Angeles, Denver and Washington, among others. It's since gone global, with Asia joining in the demands for change. In Europe, too, hundreds of cities are taking part in the protests. I have no faith in Obama. I don't have faith in anybody in Congress. All they do, their Congress is bought and paid for by special interests. They're the ones who control the government. They're the ones who write legislation. Right now, corporations are kind of running the government by funding political campaigns, and then those politicians get into office. And of course, they're going to do what's in the corporation's best interest, because that's who's funding them, and that's who's giving them money. And the people are kind of left in the dust. A very small number of people have masses, massive amounts of wealth in their hands, and a lot of other people don't have much. That poses threats to those who have a lot, and those threats can come from a number of directions. And throughout history, wealth defense has been the question, if, if you do have a, a mountain of wealth that you sit upon, what are your strategies for defending it against the threats that can come from all kinds of different directions? And so just having a mountain of wealth is something that's inherently destabilizing no matter what time you've lived in society. Exactly right. And that includes America today. An unassuming health clinic in North London. Not one of these people had ever been on strike before. This, they say, is the action of last resort. Most of the people here are either nurses, physio AHPs, physiotherapists, dietitians. And it's very hard. We want to provide the service to our public. But this is something that we all felt as one. We have to actually make a stand now. But we don't want to be doing this. I'm a nurse by my background and a health visitor. We don't want to be taking strike action. But we have no choice. We are left with no choice in this action at all. One government minister said this was being organised by militants determined to disrupt people's lives. But it doesn't look like it. It looks more like a mouse that decided to roar. The government's message to these people is, you have no business going on strike. You become nurses or teachers out of a sense of public duty. That's true, say the strikers, we do do it for the public, but this time you pushed us too far. If we compare, let's say roughly, the top... 1,000 or 500 people in the United States and in Imperial Rome, and we compare them to the average position of the bottom 90% of those two societies. So I'm not talking about comparing them to the poorest, the average of the bottom 90%. And Rome had slaves. That's right. Rome was a slave and farmer community, uh, predominantly. And that ratio in Rome between the top senators, the top 500 and, or 1,000 at the top, and the average Roman community member, including slaves, was 10,000 to 1. Today, and that's on wealth grounds, today in the United States, it is 20,000 to 1. So wealth is two times as concentrated as Imperial Rome, which was a slave and farmer uh, society. That's how huge the gap is. The good news is that the graph has shifted so that the overall standard of living for the average person is better than it was in Imperial Rome, certainly. We don't have slaves. But the gap um, between the people at the average and at the very top is much larger. We'll occupy the streets. We'll occupy the courts. We'll occupy the offices of you till you do. 
The bidding of the many, not the few We are the many You are the few This is The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with David McNally about life in the age of austerity. And you mentioned China. You were just in China recently, and uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you saw over there? Uh, is the economy doing well? Is it doing poorly? Are people uh, experiencing and getting images of Occupy uh, over there and, and seeing that and acting on that? You know, it's a very complex story right now, because if you just measure the economic statistics, China is a huge success. That is to say, its gross domestic product is growing faster than almost anywhere else on the planet. But at the same time, China has become the most unequal society of any sort of major economic country on the planet. It is more unequal than the United States, it is more unequal than Canada. There is a small elite that is fantastically wealthy. I saw so many luxury cars on the streets, for instance. It's sort of shocking. But at the same time, as I say, it's massively unequal, and people are literally choking on the environmental damage that's taking place. I mean, the air quality in places like Shanghai and Beijing, in the southern economic zones and so on, is just horrifying. The diseases that are being generated, respiratory ailments and and so on. You have people who are being driven off the land as it becomes impossible to survive as a small farmer anymore. All of that's happening. And there's a lot of protests, but the government is still able to prevent ongoing social movements from emerging. So that what you get is a lot of very, very militant, short one-day actions to stop, for instance, the enclosure of the land on which people have lived. You get, just last week, 6,000 workers at a shoe factory, really just in a huge sweatshop, uh, going out on strike and fighting with the police and demanding some basic improvements in their sweatshop wages. That kind of protest is happening all the time. But so far, the Chinese government has been able to prevent sustained and ongoing social movements from really getting out there. But at the same time, China's economic model is coming under more and more stress. They've got their own real estate bubble, which is starting to collapse right now, just the way the real estate bubble did in the United States in 2007, 2008. That's already started in China, and I could witness that while I was there. And so their model is, is also producing huge tensions and enormous contradictions. And I think the young people, my experience is that the young people were similarly very concerned for the future, and they really wanted to know about the Occupy movement. They're not in a position yet to do anything like that, but they're trying to learn the story of what's going on. They're fascinated by it, and bits of it of the Occupy uh, movement, bits of it are filtering through into the mainstream press, so they are able to follow it, even though, uh, for instance, Facebook is uh, blocked 
in China. Their, their daily newspapers and lots of other uh, internet sources are available to them. So they're following it. And when I gave a lecture to undergraduates, for example, they wanted to keep talking with me for the longest time about that movement and how they could imagine someday being a part of it, even if not in exactly the same way. So I think that the idea that China is somehow going to rescue Western capitalism, no, that's not going to happen. They're starting to experience all the same problems that uh, we're dealing with in Western capitalism right now, even if it's a very different context and their freedom of political organization is more constrained than ours. But the demonstrations that and strikes and so on, which are a daily occurrence in China, do have the rulers there very, very frightened. They're not sure how long it can go before they're going to have to deal with much more public oppositional movements. And while that could be some years away, I don't think there's any doubt that that's coming to China too. So many people are happy to be that cog in the machine that you mentioned, and they enjoy their cog life. They enjoy their iPhones, their Big Macs, and Sunday football tailgangs. And people of my parents' generation, the baby booming generation, are, are about to collect their retirement. They've been working their whole lives. They've been saving and saving, and now they're struggling as they watch their unemployed college-graduated children fighting for retail work, which they had never thought that they would have to do. They, they thought they were going to have better jobs than they had. What do we exactly. do with the people who are part of that now? 99% who are content with working for the 1% and being inside this cog in the machine, how do we reach those peoples and change their mind? How do we do that? Well, I think the key thing is to realize that those people, even when they often profess that they're happy with how their lives have gone, even those people, that's never the full story because there's just too much that you sacrifice to be a cog in the machine that doesn't create some other kinds of feelings. But very often, people suppress those. They hold them down. They won't acknowledge that, in fact, being a cog in the machine meant being treated very, very poorly by managers, executives, supervisors, and so on, that they suffered humiliations to get there, that they often felt depressed about the emptiness of the nine to five and doing the same thing over and over again so that CEOs could get rich, that they are deeply worried and saddened by the idea that the children who they thought they were preparing a better future for are going to have a worse future than they did. I mean, many, many people who accept the role of being a cog in the machine often say to you, I do this so that my kids can have a better life. That's very often what they passionately believe, that they're making sacrifices because it will be better for their children. And what I think we're beginning to see is just the early signs of a kind of fraying of that loyalty to the system that the kind of people uh, that you've been describing have had. Just starting to fray. They're not yet prepared to say it's time for radical social change, but they have doubts and bigger doubts perhaps than they've maybe had in their whole lifetimes about 
where this society is going and what the future is. And I think something you touched on is right. As they move into their years of being pensioners and they discover that their lives will not be as good in retirement as they had hoped because of the way pensions are being attacked and they feel disillusioned about the prospects for their children. I think you may see, it may be slower than we would like, but I think you will see that discussion happening among an older generation. I mean, my father is somewhat older, but he's somebody who came from a poor background, but made it during the great economic expansion of the 1950s and 60s. He became a comfortable middle-class man. And while he always had something of a social conscience, he never participated in any protest politics, and he always thought that he was doing a lot of this for his children to have a better life. Now he looks the situation that faces his children and his grandchildren, and he is outrightly professing his support for the Occupy movement. And I don't think he's completely atypical. It's true, he has a son like me who talks to him all the time and (laughs) uh, exposes him to lots of different sources. But of course, I think as more and more young people become involved in Occupy, their parents will start to ask them, explain to me why you're doing this. Tell me what this is about. Do you think you can make a difference? I'm worried for you, because that's often the thing with parents. They, they are worried that their children... Yes, they worry a whole lot. But at the same time, they, at some level, I think, also really respect the idea of taking a stand and insisting on a better future. And I think if they see their children get pepper sprayed and that sort of thing, they can get very angry. We saw that after the G20 in Toronto a year and a half ago. It was amazing to me in the demonstrations afterwards, the people from the suburbs who came in, you know, did the 45 minute to an hour commute to come to a demonstration. And the numbers of them who said, I've never been to a protest before, but they were wearing signs like, officer with badge number such and such, you pepper sprayed my son. Wow. That's why I am here. Yeah. And Yeah. And I think what we're going to see is that older generation warm up to what the younger generation is doing. And so I'm not talking about an overnight shift. I'm talking about them becoming more receptive, more open-minded, more willing to listen, and even occasionally, like these folks I was describing after the G20 in Toronto, saying, okay, that's it. That's enough. I go to a protest when I see young people being treated like that. Um, So I'm not saying, you know, it all happens overnight. But when you get a seismic shift in politics, that is what happens. I like to remind people that before I came into the anti-war movement, the first demonstration in New York City against the Vietnam War had 400 people. Four years later, they could put a million people in the streets. And by 1970, six years after the first demonstration, they had convinced a majority of Americans for the first time ever in U.S. history to oppose a war being waged by their government. And that was, you know, that process of seismic shift. And at first, the 400 felt so isolated. They just, they just felt they had to do it morally. But the idea 
that they could be a million in four years and that they could have a majority of society on their side six years later. I don't think that was on their radar screens, but that was in fact what happened because they were the people who in a certain sense started that shift. And it was a shift that just became irreversible. And so I think that's how we have to look at the people who've spent their lives as a cog in the machine and initially want to tell us that that was the right thing to do. Because, of course, it's hard to say, you know what, I wish I had had other life choices available to me. And I look back now with some genuine regrets. But I think they'll do that as they see a new direction being created by a younger generation. And so that really takes us back to our earlier point, why what young people today is so important, because the generational shift that they create will also percolate over into other generations. Absolutely. And David, thank you so much for your time with us today. Uh, so much hope in, in your message, and we really appreciate it. We had one last question for you related to how capitalism fragments us through our exchange of labor for money. And uh, we, we saw people like Margaret Thatcher say that, you know, there is no society. And for generations, we've had this mindset of thinking individually and extreme individualization. Do you think there's a way to reverse this extreme individualization and, and start building a way of collective thinking? I do. And I don't, in saying that, I don't want to underestimate what those 30 years or so since Thatcher and Reagan and company have done, because they managed to destroy the networks of solidarity and cooperation that were, had been the backbone of previous social movements. They did create that atomized state among people, where people felt like you can't make collective change. So everybody fell back into their own little refuge, usually their home life, their family life, and people's horizons contracted from being concerned about the well-being of the whole society. It became be concerned about the smallest social unit, yourself and maybe your kin. And so that is corrosive of solidarity. But at the same time, of course, the vast majority of people never fully lived those totally individualized lives. They did find all kinds of different ways of cooperating together, from the most elementary of people helping one another with childcare in a community, or taking food over to neighbors who've experienced a death in the family or lost a job. Those basic acts of compassion and solidarity never really disappeared, but our culture was celebrating one thing and one thing alone, rampant individualism, individual success, the personal pursuit of wealth. And that became almost a cult, a religious cult in our society. But I think that that's exhausted itself. I think one of the things we're seeing with the Occupy movement is people saying, that's empty and meaningless for me. That is not the life I, I seek. And as a result, one of the things that movements for social change do is that they recreate community. They create new kinds of solidarity. They create new bonds of friendship and belonging amongst people. And we often forget that social movements aren't just about the changes that we make out there 
to institutions. They're also about the changes we make to ourselves and to our co-thinkers, our comrades and friends in the movement, that we become a different kind of person by acting collectively, by building social movements together. And the great social movements of the past create new institutional forms also. That is to say, if you think about Occupy, the general assemblies where people come together in their hundreds and sometimes their thousands and deliberate together and make decisions together, those experiences in a new kind of participatory democracy. We need to really emphasize those life-changing effects of social movements because ultimately their success is not just the changing of institutions. It's also the forging and the building of new kinds of human social relationships. And I think that's what this movement signifies. It's the exhaustion of the empty, atomized, fragmented life that the neoliberal era had offered us. And partly, I've said this before in some of my speeches at Occupy, Occupy is really a movement about reclaiming. And one of the things we're reclaiming is community and solidarity among people. And I think that is a huge challenge to the powers that be. Because once people taste that, this idea that really, there are collective forms, communal forms of life that are truly meaningful and make a difference to us, to our spiritual, psychological, intellectual, cultural, and social well-being. When people experience that, it's tough to persuade them that the most meaningful thing in your life is the next purchase at the mall. I think that rings pretty hollow uh, to people. And so I think we need to also dedicate ourselves to that, that idea that this social movement we're building is part of the change itself, that it has this enormously inspiring power. And if we can really emphasize that, not to get caught up in letting divisions in our movement become the focus, acknowledging that there will be differences and it will be important to debate them and discuss them, but to come to our resolutions in a spirit of respect and solidarity, that's something that I think the powers that be are going to have a very hard time stopping. That closes out our interview with David McNally on the future of the Occupy movement, the future of youth and society, reasons for hope, and realizing that another world truly is possible, one that is engaging, is socially constructive. Seth, what do you think? Do you think that people in our generation, because we've grown up 
with all of these promises of gadgets, of you know, iPhone fives and sixes, and fancier and fancier and faster and shinier MacBooks, you think we're willing to accept a future that has less consumer gadgets if it means that we're more socially engaged? Well, I think our generation has grown up with both sides of that. We were right there when you know AOL started rolling out, and you know the internet wasn't huge when we were in, in elementary school, but it got bigger and bigger and bigger as we as we went along. Our generation has seen that. The side where there's no internet, we've also seen the side where there is a world full of internet. Although you know, a lot of us can't remember a time when there wasn't Facebook and there wasn't Twitter all around us, and, and our smartphone wasn't constantly in our pocket giving us radiation. But it will be a very hard transition away from those technologies now that we've seen the power and the amazing flexibility that communication at 24 hours and an international scale can give us. So, Justin, do you think that our generation can move away from these technologies now that we're so very addicted to them? Well, I think that for us, we've been able to live on both sides of the digital divide because I remember when I was growing up, internet was much harder to access and we didn't have it everywhere and, you know, smartphones weren't the way of the world. We're 25 and 27, respectively. And for us, we have lived on both sides, but people three, four, five years younger than us, they really haven't known a different world. I think it was Alan Kay who said that technology is anything that's created after you're born. Because for you, if you're born into that world, it's just the way of life. It's the way of living. There's, there's no other context that you can imagine outside of that reality that's created for you and modulated by the technologies that we have. And so for us, the internet, smartphones, all of these things were created after we were born. But for some of the people who are, you know, in their teens now, in their later teens, all of these things have been there almost their entire lives, at least their entire conscious lives when they were able to interact with the world. And so to think that we're on the verge of moving away from those things, from moving to an economic system that can't develop fancier and fancier MacBooks and Apple products can be really scary and a huge shift of potential responses to the world around us. I don't know how people are going to handle it. Like we talked about with David, we live in this economic system that forces us into individualized thinking, that forces us into f more and more fragmentary ways of interacting with people. You know, in the past, having a community was much more of a common experience. And now even a lot of the calling that we have for community is very empty because we don't have to rely on each other. And we spoke with Charles Eisenstein back in Extra Environmentalist episode number 25. And Charles talks a lot about this in his books, how because we don't have to rely on anyone else, because everything that we do can easily be replaced by someone else that we just pay money to. There's no real context for relationship. And in a lot of ways, it's more convenient the way that we have it because, you know, I just have money and I can do anything. It doesn't matter. I don't have to know people. I don't even have to be a likable person. I can just go out and spend money and uh, I can get all my needs met. But what we're starting to see is that we're entering into a time when there's going to be a lot less available money in the world for a lot of the reasons we've talked about with previous guests. And so that means that because there's less available money, we're going to have to find ways to do things that don't require money. I know that's really hard for people to imagine. 
I wonder what a world would look like if, say, you know, we weren't collapsing and we were just getting more and more technological and there, we had plenty of, of resources to just live on. Where do you think the technology would go to? What's the far extreme of unending growth? Where does that end up with a society? Well, I recently saw a movie called Thrive and Thrive is kind of I guess the next zeitgeist movie in a sense. So it's this guy, he was like the heir to Procter and Gamble. And so he essentially had enough money that as long as he didn't blow it all, he could research his own interests. And so he's been researching things like UFOs and free energy. And that led him into understanding a lot of things that we talk about on our show, like corporations and the and the ways that our experience is modulated for us through advertising and you know the truth about our economic system and the way that money's created. But anyways, at the start of the movie, he talks a whole bunch about all these free energy technologies that have been suppressed by companies like ExxonMobil and Shell because it would cut into their oil monopolies. And that's a really attractive idea for a lot of people to think that if we just had the source of free energy out there in the world, we could just live without constraints and we'd be free to just thrive and be happy. And part of me really, truly wants to believe that free energy exists and is out there in the world. And what little research I have been able to do into it has not really convinced me that free energy sources do exist. I mean, partially that's because of the scientist in me and, and you know, coming from a, a physics educational background. And part of me is always going to be really skeptical of free energy. But the other side of me says that let's say, let's take it for granted and let's say that free energy does exist. What would happen to the world? Well, what have we been doing with all of our energy sources for the past hundred years? We've been making them more and more efficient. We've been taking all of our operations in society and making them far more efficient. And free energy would be the most efficient form of energy. So what would that mean? That means that we would spread across this planet and multiply in numbers to unbelievable extents. There would be 20 billion humans on this planet, which is pretty crazy to think of. We're struggling to get by even here at 7 billion. And to think that there'd be 20 billion humans on the planet would be insane. So, okay, let's make the argument. All right, we have so much energy. We're going to fly to other planets and colonize those. Well, we're going to devastate those planets as well. What's going to happen is that humans would very quickly become the only species on this planet if we truly did have a source of free energy. And so that's why, even though it's really attractive to believe that there's some kind of infinite source of energy that we can just tap into, there's a lot of physical laws that we currently understand that say that's not possible. Let's say all those physical laws get overturned, like the second law of thermodynamics, like suddenly they, we just made this amazing discovery and they were overturned and suddenly we had this free energy, it's not going to be a panacea. In fact, it might even add to our problems. Isn't the technological utopia something like humans discover that source of free energy and then do spread across the galaxy and turn all matter into consciousness? Isn't that the utopia dream of of what free energy means? I think it is. It's based on this dream. And, it, and a lot of the belief and fight for free energy comes from that idea that humans are this exceptional species that's going to go out into the world and out into the universe and spread consciousness into other realms that we haven't even touched yet. You know, taking the physical matter of the universe through like silicon chips and imbuing them with consciousness and spreading our, our brains throughout the universe, you know, that's a really techno-utopian view of the world. 
And it's the view that a lot of us have because of the science fiction that, that we've been reading and a lot of the underlying myths of our society. And that's not to say that maybe it won't happen someday. We're entering a period where there's going to be a lot of slowing down of technological progress in what we think of it just because of the money and energy issues that we cover on our show, but also because I think there's going to be other things that we have to worry about here in the immediate future before we can focus on getting an iPhone 7 and flying to Mars, if that's even possible at all in the future. But the whole singularity idea by people like Ray Kurzweil, and they have been pushing this techno-utopian model but all of that stems from these underlying myths of our society, like human exceptionalism, and that goes into things like American exceptionalism, when you see how imbued it is in American culture. And there's not a lot of physical reality to back those sorts of claims up. But it's still fun to think about, you know, it's still fun to think about what it's like when you can have computers implanted into your brain to think about the speed of light and your whole reality slows down because you have so much processing power. It's not going to make morality better, but it might. You know, communication definitely it definitely helps make people more connected. And when you're feeling more connected with the planet and the people on the planet, you can't help but feel more moral because how can you start a war with a country when you have your best friend that lives there? You know, when you when when countries and when countries and civilizations all are the same because of increased communication, increased technology that are linking people together, it becomes harder to have feuds with each other and harder to have physical conflict, I would feel, perhaps. To some extent, I believe that. But yes, the whole techno-utopian notion is built on this whole idea of transcending any and all limits. And that's a really attractive thing because there's been so many limits that's been placed on our species and on our societies that it really would be great to be able to transcend those with something like free energy. But the problem is that we're about to take that way of thinking and run it up against hard physical limits. That's why we're seeing the debt crises in Europe and the United States and all of the problems in Pakistan and India in terms of you know flights being canceled constantly and all of them running out of fuel and riots because of blackouts all in Pakistan. Right. Um, but you, what I'm saying is if, if we didn't have those limits, which we do have, and it makes it really, you know, makes it the physical reality, makes it comes crashing down on our technological utopia, which is a sad thing for a lot of people because, you know, like you said, we want those iPhone 7s because it's a progression of technology, which is the progression of human evolution in a way. And when you can control your own evolutionary path, you don't have to worry about nature getting in the way. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, exactly. It's it's built on a whole idea that we are separate from nature and that we can transcend it and we can transcend the physical limits of our planet. But the, the reality is we cannot and we are very much linked to our planet. And when those realities come crashing back down on you, it's sometimes a very brutal wake-up call. And that's why we're having to face all of these adjusted expectations for the future. You know, it's it's really sad in so many ways to think of all the dire personal circumstances that exist out there in the world. You know, like in our last episode, we played that clip from an RT news report about the girl that had like $150,000 in college debt because she went and got a, a master's degree. And, you know, she can't even find like janitorial work and she's like months behind on her rent and all of those dire personal circumstances add up to a society that's increasingly more and more dire you know over the past few months about 400,000 people every week have been filing initial unemployment claims and new jobs aren't being created at that same kind of rate and the ones that are, are typically underemployed jobs 
And what do you get when you have a society that's continually adding more and more dire circumstances? It's, it's a really different world than we expected. But it's also, when we talk about issues of collapse, the reason why I think that we have to stop talking about collapse, we have to talk about collapsing because we're experiencing it right now. It may not feel like it because perhaps our personal life circumstances are, are perhaps quite good. You know, we have a good life and we eat well and all of these things. But for everyone who's been kicked out of the system, who doesn't have a job and can't get access to it, you suddenly have to find a different way of living. And that means relying on your family, on the people around you, you know, changing your whole prospects of a career. Every year that people graduate from universities around uh, North America and around the world, they're bumped out into an increasingly dire job market. And it just adds to the amount of people who never even got into the system that they expected they sacrificed their youth to get into. And that's why we have to talk about what it means to be in a collapsing civilization as opposed to a collapse in the future because it's happening to us now. Now, the difference is a lot of people imagine collapse as being like a really fast thing. It's like collapse. Oh, you know, a person like drops and they fall instantly. It's not like that. As we've spoken with John Michael Greer, it may take us a hundred years or more to go through this process, but it's something that is occurring right now. And that's why you and I are want to have these conversations about it with people who know about the various aspects of our civilization. You know, what's something that's interesting to consider is that we talk about the 99% versus the 1% in our society. If you take that 1% of the people that we're talking about in, in this westernized society and you compare that to the rest of the world, that 99% is better off than in, in our country that we're, we're talking about is is like the one percent of the world the rest of the world we are so much better off so much wealthier and and so much technologically more advanced than most of the other people in the world that we have no conceiving of what it even means to to live in a third world country or to have to think about where your next meal is going to come from or the fact that your child your child is going to go hungry if, if you don't go rob that store we have no idea of what that's like because we live in such a wealthy well-off country. And and that's a great point. You know, our 99% is the 1% of the world. Yeah, and that and our 1% is like the 0.0001% of the world. <laughs> so I was listening to a, a Terrence McKenna talk the other day, and he said that reason, science, and unbridled capitalism have delivered 3% of us into an angelic realm overshadowed by guilt about the 97% of us who are eating it. And that's a pretty, you know, and that goes goes uh, off into exactly the topics that we were talking about, you know? He, exactly. he really cuts through with clarity on that. I guess when you all put it into perspective, it's all like that, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, if you like this conversation and you like our interview with David and you want to hear more interviews along these same kind of lines and you like hearing Justin philosophize and me bring up crazy ideas about whatever I just talked about, you can head over to our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can check us out on Facebook. You can check us out on the Stitcher app, which we are newly on. You can listen to us on CITR radio. You can find us on the Twitter sphere at X Environmental. Hi, guys. My name is Judy, and I am calling from Oakland, California, and I just wanted to shout out at you and tell you that you guys are doing a totally superb job. Um, I've listened to a lot of your shows, and I really love what you guys are doing it's totally new and fresh and the music is completely killer and um you're just really inspiring me and i'm just loving it so um keep doing what you're doing and um the people you're getting on the show are fantastic so um anyway you guys are just totally killing it and um thank you so much okay bye-bye
thanks so much, Judy. We really appreciate that you're listening and enjoying the show. And Judy also wanted to throw out a, a link to her website, connectionaction.org, which talks about looking at empathic communication and using that in social action and spirituality, which a lot of really fascinating stuff is on the site. And perhaps we'll be doing a show about nonviolent communication sometime in the new year. Uh, yeah, she so, offers training and workshops and consultations even. Yeah. So thanks for giving us a call, Judy. We really appreciate it. So Justin, did we hear from anybody else? Yeah, we heard from Christopher, um, who wrote us to say that he's really been enjoying the show, but that also we need to have Creative Commons licensing on all our stuff. And this just totally slipped my mind because of course everything that we're putting out there we want other people to use. I mean a lot of the music that we pull in is, is from music blogs and it's mashups and covers and it's all stuff that people have sampled and put together. And we want people to go out and take clips from our interviews and remix them and do all kinds of things with them. You know, if you take one of our episodes and use it in an audio project, let us know. We've thrown up a Creative Commons license on our website, so you're free to use clips from the show. But just thanks to Christopher for uh, reminding us to do this. He wrote in to say that he was an MIT grad in 79 of architecture, and that he's working on the stories that we tell ourselves. And he'd love for us to do a podcast on denial and brain science. And actually, we've, we've got something in the works there already. So Christopher, we're happy to tell you that we'll be talking to someone in the near future who's going to give us quite a bit of information about the ways that our brains work in relation to myths and how that prevents us from accepting reality. So yeah, we're, we're going to be covering that. And then he also wanted to let us know that he was really frustrated with his MIT education because he was in an auditorium with like 500 other people taking the required economics course. We, he could have gone to Harvard to take the equivalent course with John Kenneth Galbraith. And that mm, just yeah. breaks my heart because John Kenneth Galbraith is amazing. Like I've been reading some of his books recently, a, a short history of financial euphoria about the psychology of bubble economics. And that book is incredible like the stories that are in there like the French guy who wanted to fix the French debt problem so he created this scheme that people would go over to Louisiana and mine gold and he wasn't actually sending people over to Louisiana to mine gold and he was selling like futures contracts on the gold mining from Louisiana and oh yeah you were telling me about that yeah people were starting to figure it out and so he marched people through the streets with shovels and like here's another load of people on a boat to go mine gold in Louisiana, you better invest. And eventually he ended up failing and people figured him out as all of these things do. But it was a, a great book and John Kenneth Galbraith had some great talks and things that I found too. And to think that, you know, you had to take this boring neoclassical economics class when you could have heard from Galbraith is just really sad. And you know, the real reason that Justin and I have put the Curative Commons license on our podcast is just so that one of our Amazing listeners will make our one of our episodes into a dubstep beat that we can, you know, use on the show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing your voice dubstepped. It's gonna be exciting. You're you're gonna be out at the club one night and you're gonna hear like the sick beat and then it'll be Seth's voice saying like, wait a second, I know that guy. Saying we are the ninety-nine percent or <laughs> we are the one percent of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely but it yes. might be scary too it will be so okay thanks so much for listening again this is our number 30 episode 
So, you know, if you feel really impassioned, tell 50 people about our 30th episode or actually, you know what? Tell 30 people because it's our 30th episode and make sure that everybody out there stays well and away from the pepper spraying police and love your parents. isn't about the 99% defeating or toppling the 1%. You know the next chapter of that story, which is that the 99% create a new 1%. That's not what it's about. What we want to create is the more beautiful world our hearts tell us is possible, a sacred world, a world that works for everybody, a world that is healing, a world of peace. You can't just say, we demand a world of peace. Demands have to be specific. Anything that people can articulate can only be articulated within the language of the current political discourse. And that entire political discourse is already, is already too small. And that's why making explicit demands kind of reduces the movement and takes the heart out of it. And so it's a real paradox. And so I think that the, the movement actually understands that. The system isn't working for the 1% either. You know, if you were a CEO, you would be making the same choices they do. The institutions have their own logic. Life is pretty bleak at the top, too. And all of the baubles of the rich, they're kind of this um, phony compensation for the loss of what's really important. The loss of community, the loss of connection, the loss of intimacy, the loss of meaning. Everybody wants to live a life of meaning. And today, we live in a money economy where we don't really depend on the gifts of anybody, but we buy everything. Therefore, we don't really need anybody because whoever grew my food or made my clothes or built my house, well, if they died or if I alienate them, if they don't like me, that's okay. I can just pay somebody else to do it. And it's really hard to create community if the underlying knowledge is we don't need each other. So people kind of get together and they act nice or maybe they consume together. But joint consumption doesn't create intimacy. Only joint creativity and gifts create intimacy and connection. You have such gifts that are important. Just like every species has an important gift to give to an ecosystem and the extinction of any species hurts everybody. The same is true of each person that you have a necessary and important gift to give. And that for a long time, our minds have told us that maybe we're imagining things, that it's crazy to live according to what you want to give. But I think now, as more and more people wake up to the truth that we're here to give and wake up to that desire and wake up to the fact that the other way isn't working anyway, the more reinforcement we have from people around us that this isn't crazy. 
this makes sense. This is how to live. And as we get that reinforcement, then our minds and our logic no longer have to fight against the logic of the heart, which wants us to be of service. This shift of consciousness that inspires such things is universal in everybody, 99% and 1%. And it's awakening in different people in different ways. I think love is the felt experience of connection to another being. An economist says that essentially more for you is less for me. But the lover knows that more for you is more for me too. If you love somebody, then their happiness is your happiness. Their pain is your pain. Your sense of self expands to include other beings. That's love. Love is the expansion of the self to include the other. And that's a different kind of revolution. There's no one to fight. There's no evil to fight. There's no other in this revolution. Everybody has a unique calling. And it's really time to listen to that. That's what the future is going to be. It's time to get ready for it and to help contribute to it and make it happen. In, in the history of scientific disciplines, we tend to make the easiest discoveries first. For example, electricity and penicillin are no longer out there waiting for us to discover them. Uh, in, instead, we have moved on to far more science that's far more complex, that involves large interdisciplinary teams and very high costs. And so it costs more and more to innovate. In the past, a single scientist like uh, Charles Darwin or Thomas Edison could develop whole new fields of knowledge or whole new industries on their own or perhaps with a few assistants in the case of Thomas Edison. Uh, you think of Gregor Mendel who developed the field of genetics simply working in a monastery. Today in contrast, science is done by large interdisciplinary teams and interdisciplinary teams are costly. The reason why we need teams tackle scientific problems today is because the problems have grown more complex and more costly, much as petroleum exploration has grown more complex and more costly. So we spend more and more uh, on innovation, and we're experiencing diminishing returns for our investment. I've done a research project on innovation with a couple of colleagues, and we looked at patents in the United States, the United States patent system, but also patents around the world because about half of United States patents are granted to foreign entities, foreign individuals or foreign corporations. And with a database starting in 1974, what we found is that the productivity of our system of innovation, in fact, has been declining. Did you know 
that there are 535 people in this world who serve selflessly in public office. Some of them even work in Washington, D.C. Did you know that there are many people out there who on this very night will only be able to find love through a highly priced call girl in a Beltway motel? Hi, my name's Jake Hackinson. You may remember me from all the sitcoms that I contributed the laugh track for. Yes, that was my voice that told you when it was socially appropriate to laugh at situational comedy that may or may not actually have been funny. I'm here today to use my status to speak on behalf of the many people who serve in our government who put their industry paychecks on the line to sacrifice for your common good. Yes, I'm speaking about your United States House of Representatives members and senators. They live sad, depressing, miserable lives, passing the legislation you need to run your society for only the cost of a blank corporate check every single day. You can ensure that House of Representatives members and senators can have multiple sources of wealth funneled toward them to diversify their interests. Terrible things happen when only one corporate interest dominates the mind of a congressman or woman. Let's hear from one of them about the inhumane conditions they face. I'm the senator from Kentucky, and my goodness, the bourbon industry has ensured that my constituents and myself are so incredibly, incredibly intoxicated that we cannot get any work done. All bills that we sponsor are written entirely by the alcohol industry, and I can only barely scratch my name on them at the last minute before I just pass out in my own throw-up. Can you imagine a world where a man like this is responsible for writing complex legislation that regulates the financial industry? We can too. Did you know that the people responsible for our legislation can only sometimes get away with expanding their wealth through insider trading? We know you're out there banks, finance industry, real estate, maybe even food service sector. With your compassionate contribution, you can make sure that no one is faced with having to live a miserable life receiving contributions from only a single corporation, like this representative from Texas. Kentucky Fried Chicken has taken over my life. All I can think about is Kentucky Fried Chicken all day and night. I dream about Kentucky Fried Chicken. I looked at my wife yesterday, and man, she looked like a big breast of Kentucky Fried Chicken. I had all the little, little, little ones around me looking like potatoes. Mmm, I love potatoes. Now when I go to Congress, all I can do is vote for Kentucky Fried Chicken. It doesn't matter the bill. It doesn't matter if it's a tax bill or a road paving bill. All I can vote for is yes for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Our operators are standing by to make sure that you can take the responsibility necessary to expand the range of all of these special people's special interests. But don't worry, if you're not just a legal person and an actual person as well, there are options available for you. For just the cost of a pact with the devil and your immortal soul, you too can influence the mind of one of your representatives. Hi, I'm Joan. When I heard that I could sponsor a senator to get my wishes heard in Congress, I thought, wow, only my soul? I can do that. I also auctioned off my young child for their immortal soul so that I could sponsor another senator. And now my ideas on abortion can influence the whole country. What would that blank checkbook do anyways? Is it just sitting there, laying open on your desk? 
preparing for that next trip to Europe, that next conference you'd like to attend, that next round of guns you'd like to smuggle across the border that you're using to fund the drug war in Mexico? We know that money in your hedge fund can do so much more. We truly care about the people running our legislative process, and we know you do too. Recent college graduates are manning the phones in their unpaid internships at congressional offices waiting for your call. Thank you, and God bless.